This podcast is brought to you by JBL. Employing the best methods and tools, audio technology is at the core of everything JBL creates. Never straying from a ground-up approach to everything they build, JBL has produced a prolific list of audio achievements, groundbreaking technologies, and revolutionary advances in the art and science of professional audio. JBL, passion for sound and those who create it. Learn more at JBL.com. Hello and welcome to Tape Ops Discussion, where we call our friends and music community notables to chat about their favorite records. Enjoy. Welcome to Discussion. I'm Jeff Stanfield, and for this episode, we chat with Elena Moore and Patrick Riley from Tennis about Broadcast's 2005 release, Tender Buttons. You guys sent me this record to check out, um, broadcast, uh, Tender Buttons, and it's a record that I had yeah. not, I'd never heard before. Oh, cool. So that was fun. Why did, why did you guys, uh, choose this one? I mean, we, I think it's just been one of those albums that stuck around with us for our whole careers. And we, you know, we loved it when we first heard it and we still love it today. And we're still like enamored by the magic in it. And we also feel like, I think the more we've talked about it, we realize that it's like, like cornerstone to our band. Pat and I, one of the things that's really special about this record is that we both separately heard it for the first time out in the world and it just came on somewhere and we both were like had to stop what we were doing to listen and had to immediately ask around to find out what we were hearing and that's not an everyday experience for us you know i mean we'll like like music that's on but it's rare that we're like stopping our tracks yeah i heard this in a record <laughs> store for the first time and it was i've only had this experience once in my life where it was playing over the house system and i just stopped and was like I had to run up to the desk and be like, who is this? Mm -hmm. They're like, it's broadcast. I was like, I've got to buy it. Yeah. So this one's really special for me. The song I heard was tears in the typing pool, which is on this one. And it's actually the first time that I heard music. It was in college that I was like, it made me want to write a song. It was actually a very distinct feeling. I was like, Oh, I want to write something. And uh, I think a lot of our connection with broadcast is, um, Obviously, they wear their influences on their sleeves. They love Phil Spector and also Joe Meek. And I, we feel like you can hear like Telstar influence all through this record specifically. Um, and so I feel like, yeah, there's just like a lot of like overlapping influences um, between us that, yeah, it's something where it's like this album isn't like, I think this album is very underrated and so is the band. Um, so it's something that even though we both loved this record, we didn't realize it was going to become like one of the albums of our lives until, you know, it's been like more than a decade and it's still like so influential to us. Before the end of 
the the old uh, classic rock um, and early rock and roll influences on this record. I mean, literally the first thing I heard. I mean, it, and it is a it is a synth record. It is an electronic record in a lot of ways, and it and it has a lot of uh, European influences as well like i heard like noi and 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 kind of bands like that in there but the first thing that came to mind was um oddly <laughs> was crosby <laughs> stills and nash like oh, I cool. yeah the melodic like the sick the signatures of like oh how the harmonies line up it's not always the easiest record to listen to uh all the way through um yeah, actually, I agree. With, I, I, I actually, I completely agree. And I, one of the things that I really like about it is that, like, through most of the record, is that very aggressive saw synth that's just like searing over top of it. And in my mind, I feel like I, I mean, obviously, I can't speak for Trish, and she's no longer with us, the lead singer. But I feel like the that those like very the noise is used as a counterpoint to how like delicate and ultra feminine her vocal performances are. And I feel like I relate to that instinct in her with production because I also have like a very, I guess, like kind of girlish voice. And I like to balance it out with something that's like aggressive or unexpected with production so that it doesn't end up coming off like saccharine because there's something that's almost like sometimes I feel like about her performances and her melodies that are almost like nursery rhymes or like you know what I mean that like very sim it's like very timeless melodies with like a very unaffected performance and so I love the way they use noise to balance that element out um, I even feel like sometimes the synths that are kind of just like stabbing all around this like otherwise very beautiful song, it feels like a fly buzzing around your head while you're eating a meal and you like can't get it away. And I feel like it's actually a really cool way of like challenging your experience while you listen to it. Once you've listened to this record more than once, you you almost it's not that you stop hearing that, but you can sort of penetrate the other elements, of, yeah, and the other aspects of the mix and and the and the melodic and the and the songwriting. You know, it, it reminded me of Stereo Lab a little bit too in in some of yeah. its aesthetic, but way more edgy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I also get some like um, 60s French pop, like Francoise Hardy, Margot Gurian a little bit, um, yeah, especially but, in the way Trish Keenan sings. Yeah, and I think we're also like, Elaine and I are, maybe we're forgetting to talk 
about why this album is so important to us on the level of just how much 60s uh, production is embedded in it as well. Like the Joe Meek stuff, the Phil Spector stuff. Occasionally it feels like there's like almost even like Beach Boys samples in it at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of stuff to us is just like the the way that they've been able to integrate that while it's still sounding new, fresh. You never for one second think of, yeah, like 60s girl groups or anything while you're listening to this, even though some of that melodic information is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like they did a good job of like modernizing their influences on this record. I think their records previous are much more like homages to their influences. They really wear it on their sleeve. But I think with this record, I know that they worked alone as a two piece, which is another thing that we find really interesting about the record as a duo who works alone in the studio. It's cool to see the way that they challenge themselves to modernize their their influences. I mean, you mentioned Tears in the Typing Pool um, as one of the songs that you, you know, that spoke to you mm-hmm. on this record. Are, are there others that you see presenting itself in, in what you guys do? The first song on the record, the drum performance in that, which it's we actually so cool. can't figure out who did it. We don't know if James Cargill did it or if it's a sample or what, but we reference that all the time it's like very bombastic and kind of jazzy over that like very droning baseline we love that song Yeah, I mean, America's Boy is one of my favorite mm-hmm. songs on the record, even though it's like, I normally wouldn't be into like 8-bit style uh, synths. synths. Um, but the way that they've like used something like this looped thing that kind of just continues out throughout the whole entire song. Um, that song really only has probably like eight tracks in it total. Uh, and you, it just moves along so effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's something we're always searching for. It's like, how can we make a big impact with a few amount of instruments without uh you know like yes the least, without, amount, the of least amount of production too yeah. so um yeah that song is just so impactful
Yeah, I think the whole record has a lot of space. I mean, the, the synths eat up a ton of the sp- frequency spectrum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's not a lot going <laughs> yeah. on in, in all of them. You know, it's it's not like yeah. a, a wild production in that regard. <clears throat> We've talked a lot about Richard Swift's influence on our production choices. And I feel like he was the first person to say, like, why keep adding, like, little frills and bells and whistles to your song like if it already worked without it basically you'd be like the moment the song feels like it's working just stop adding you know Mm -hmm. and i feel like it's even in the sense of like if you think of like dressing yourself like stop accessorizing after like your wristwatch or something like you don't need 50 necklaces and a hat um so i i feel like that's one of the things that we like we hold up about this record is I think they did a really good job of like the most minimal amount of dressing um, for the song to still feel like a whole. And that's something Pat and I really try to do be very Um, concise. But yeah, I think a whole nother side, I mean, this is going off of more of the sonic side and more steer towards the lyric side, but I feel like lyrically to this, this record is just so interesting and we're both really into Gertrude Stein, which is um, who uh, the record is named after. Um, but that's yeah. been, a, I feel like, a big influence on you as well. Yeah, I actually discovered Gertrude Stein from this record. The title, Tender Buttons, is the name of a Gertrude Stein book of poems and a poem specifically. And I know that <clears throat> Trish Keenan did a lot of that sort of like stream of conscious, like automatic writing, um, which Gertrude Stein kind of pioneered. And I actually read an interview with Trish Keenan where she said she actually didn't want to say anything on the record. She just wanted to play with words, like at just like the sounds of words to create like moods, essentially like vignettes in each song. And that's I I really love that technique. And I feel like sometimes people are a little bit dismissive of a songwriter because they aren't specifically storytelling in a conventional sense. But I think it's I think it's really also admirable, especially to judge an artist on their own terms, if her goal was not to tell a story, but to create these like word vignettes, basically, um, that are like abstracted. And I feel like that's, I think she does an amazing job with that. And I just think it's really unique to them. Do you know much about the the production, um, like where they recorded this? It looks like um, just from the very minimal digging around that I did that um, James Cargill was the primary producer, recordist, mm-hmm. played bass. Yeah. yeah. Was this like a studio record or? Everything I've read s- says that it's like the same as our band, where it's just like, you know, essentially just mo- mostly home recording. Mostly they have like their own setup somewhere with um you know very minimal gear yeah Um, i don't know if they were in a studio or not but yeah it seems like james was the producer engineer i do know we have the exact same spring reverb uh that they do (laughs) we're like i I know uh it's this like Furman uh like rack unit spring reverb um we actually richard swift was the one that did some digging to find that uh because he was he was a huge broadcast fan especially of the reverb that they used um but i think he had the same like they also used some a VX50 on some stuff too but uh yeah we have the same like little rack unit mm-hmm. that they have um but yeah from what everything i've read they just had like you know more of a home setup with very minimal gear and some synths uh and especially on this record uh this we, one we should have just coming. reached out and asked james I know, where he, they recorded alive, it so. yeah <laughs> are you friend do you know them 
No, but I feel like he would be completely open if we reached out. It's one of those things where like when I, you admire someone so much, it's almost nice to keep the distance and like, you know what I mean? Like I, I kind of like just leaving them on a pedestal. That makes sense. And, and it does, it does uh, leave some mystery to the music, of course. Mm -hmm. Any final songs on this one? On Black Cat. There's a line she repeats, awkwardness happening to someone you love. And that is such a like, it almost feels like an existentialist philosopher would say that. Do you know what I mean? It feels very like Sartrean. <laughs> it's like so, um, it's like very bizarre and abstract, but yet you completely understand what she's saying. And then I also really love on Michael A. Grammer, my feet are dancing so much and I hate that as if like her she's lost like her own autonomy of her own body um and i feel like that's i just feel like that's an example of her like kind of releasing her like rational self to do that gertrude stein style like automatic writing that's so cool but it's not about nothing like you can tell she's writing about something it's just in like this bizarre free association way well, this also i feel like this album does a really good job of like not making sense like you're and and to me that's the most magic quality of music is you can put a song together where lyrically it might read as nonsense but you can have you know produce such a profound feeling uh inside of you and you're you're just left confused at why you feel that way and i think that's maybe the why this album's so important to me is because it's showcasing that like you don't the ingredients to produce a profound feeling are actually nonsense at like, the end or of the ineffable. Day. Yeah. yeah they're ineffable you can't they're not definable and it's that side of music that i feel like a lot of people don't talk about where it's like it's not about what chords you used it's not about how cool the hook is or how cool the chorus lyrics are um it's just like are you listening back through the speakers and having a moment with it yeah like is it producing an effect on you um and i think that for me that's like the most important part of this record big influence on on uh i know at least trish but i think for broadcast is um this really cool album called the zodiac cosmic sounds have you heard of it it's from it was from the 60s it was like a one-off thing yeah, make some... that some members of the wrecking crew were part okay. of the band but it's like uh, insane hippie nonsense of like you're of like the zodiac like astrology um but it is so cool um I also, it's such a great recording. Like it, it sounds 
very well done for the time. It's so bizarre <laughs> and so tones. compelling. Yeah. Um, and that was a big influence. I found it through broadcast. Um, and I feel like it's a really cool thing to listen to and then listen to their band. And you can hear a lot of that in there. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I love most about doing this, these chats with folks is that there's an endless amount of great music out there. And, um, you know, through our, through our friends and community, we can keep finding cool music and, you know, rabbit holes to go down. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Awesome. Well, yeah. have a great tour. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Yeah. It's always nice to speak with you. Thanks for making some space for us to talk about one of our favorite records. Thanks for listening. Discussion is created by Tape Op, the creative music recording magazine. Free subscriptions are available at tapeop.com along with our regular podcast and online content.